following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And for those of you that have been following along in 1 Peter, there isn't really a not challenging message in 1 Peter. Um, Peter has this knack for just kind of hitting you over the head over and over and over again. And the stuff that he talks about is very applicable. And today we're going to go into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And uh, once again, this message is coming to the, the first century church uh, that was persecuted, that was uh, very much so... Uh, an outcast. Uh, they were considered foreigners. They, they were the downtrodden of, of the Christian society. And Peter is writing to them this, this letter, which, as we've covered up until this point in time, addressing various different groups of people. So wives, husbands, uh, slaves to their masters, masters to their slaves. Uh, and now he brings us this message for all Christians. And so this means it applies to all of us. This means that there, there's nobody that gets left out today. Uh, this message is, is for everybody here. And, and because he's writing this uh, to the church, it very much so applies to us as a, as a congregation. So uh, please know as I go through this today, this is, um, there's a lot of very challenging uh, things in this particular passage. So I do come to you as somebody that has been humbled by this, this passage myself. As I've gone through this, I do feel quite uh, unqualified to be sharing this particular passage with you today, but uh, God's called me to do it anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I think. So I'm going to bring to you the, the message that he's put on my heart. So if you'd start off by just reading with me today, First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude, don't repay evil for evil, don't retaliate with insults when people insult you, instead pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do and he will bless you for it. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. For any of you that are, are married in here, you will have heard at one point in time the wonderful advice, hopefully from somebody, somebody hopefully somebody told you this, if not, I'm going to tell you this for the first time. It's very important. You cannot control what your spouse does. You can only control what you do. And this isn't just applicable, obviously, for marriage. This is applicable for relationships. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that's the point that Peter's driving home here. Is you can't control what other people do. What you can do is you can control the way that you act. You can control the life that you live. You can make those decisions yourself. And in that way, hopefully influence people, bless people. So once again, Peter is writing this to a church that is uh, very much so new and down and out, and a, a lot of families that have been broken up by becoming Christian, uh, a, a people group that is very much so in need of encouragement. And so Peter, in all of his encouragement, I love this, he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't dance around the bush, right? He, he just tells you like it is. 
That's his encouragement. Okay? Be a good Christian. Now how shall you live is, is really the theme that's given to First Peter. And, and, and that's Peter's encouragement. Is This is my standard for you. This is what I believe God has intended for you as the Christian church. There's a saying that goes something like this. Essentially, you, you, you can tell the man, you can tell the character of a man not by what he does when things are right, but what he does when things are wrong. Now, in this first century church, things were very wrong. Not in the church itself, but in the surrounding context. Things were very wrong. And these people were being persecuted. And Peter's reaching out to them, and he's exhorting them to be the people of God that they have been called to be. To fulfill their calling as the people of God. And he gives a list of things to be. Notice these are not things to do. The context here, the scripture, the, the language does not, it doesn't say these are things to do. These, these are things to be. These are things that are supposed to be part of who you are. Not activities that we do, moral activities as Christians, but very much so who we are in our depths, in our hearts. So this is what we are supposed to be. First off, we are to be of one mind. Of one mind. Simple thing, right? To be of one mind. Well, what's the standard for that? Obviously, John 17 uh, clarifies this. What does it mean? It says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, in the church that's being persecuted, that's going through this challenging phase in, in, in the ecclesiology of the church, the first thing that Peter comes out and says is, you need to be unified. You need to be one. And Peter was right in this. He, he had experienced this. Peter knows what, but what being unified with the Holy Spirit means. He's been in the down and outs. He's been the persecuted. He's been the one to make bad choices. He knows what it means to be in disunity. And he's saying, if you are going to survive this as the church, you have to be unified. You have to be one. Now, if, if you look at this passage, this is really kind of the biggest, most overarching thing to be. Okay? To be unified. What does that mean to be unified? Well, Peter unpacks that for us a bit here. But I can tell you that just returning from a trip to, to America, I, I did not get the impression while I was there that the American church is unified. Nor do I get the, the impression here that the Thai church is unified. Nor do I get the impression from all the international news that I hear that international, the, the churches all over the world and Australia and Europe, Germany, Canada, I, I don't get the impression the church has a reputation for being unified. Unfortunately, instead of a reputation of being unified, I feel like the church has a very different reputation. And that is a reputation of division. And so at the, at the highest level, we've failed. We've already failed. And we know that this is still the expectation. So we're going to get to that. What does that mean? Why is this still an expectation? We failed miserably. What, what does that mean for us? But that's where we're going to start building our argument here. We need to be unified. We need to be the church unified on one thing and one thing only, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not on personal preference, not on denominational styles, not on translations of scripture. We need to be unified 
on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful day to be able to worship with some of our Vietnamese partners, people that we've never even met, that, that we can come together, that, that may or may not speak the same languages that we speak, but yet we can worship together. We can be unified because the gospel is bigger. The gospel is greater than those things that would divide us. So the first thing Peter says is, be unified. Be of one mind. The next thing he says is, be sympathetic. What does that mean, to be sympathetic? In some translations it says, be pitiful. Well, in kind of researching this a little bit, this is what I've come up for. To be sympathetic means to be mutually commiserative, compassionate. You're not being sympathetic out of a place of knowledge. You're not being sympathetic out of a place of perfection. You're being sympathetic out of a place of experience. Out of a place of experience of failure. That's where this type of sympathy comes from. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is a merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, He will be able to give the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with the troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that this as you, that as you shall share your sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God has given us. This idea of of sympathizing with somebody... Is, is this idea that we're, we're supposed to be understanding. And in that, there's this idea of comfort. There's this idea that, that you can welcome people into this relationship with Jesus Christ. But you don't do that from a place of, of perfection. You do that from a place of experience. Experiencing the tribulations of this world. Experiencing the, the things that come with being a Christian. The hardships, the hatred you can then sympathize with others. We are called to be sympathetic. It means to put, a, put ourselves in their place, to be understanding. So one, we're supposed to be of like mind. Two, we're supposed to be sympathetic. Now I think he structures this important because once again we're up here at the very big hierarchy of we're supposed to be one of mind. How can we possibly be a church that is one of mind if we are not willing to put ourselves in the context of another person and be sympathetic to their situation? How can we make the assumption that they should just meet us where we are because we have this figured out? When in reality, God is calling us to meet others where they are, to be sympathetic of their circumstance. Next, we are supposed to be family. This is an interesting concept, family. And as I'm I'm going through this, it seems normal on its surface, right, to be family. We're all family, right? We're the church of God. We're family. Well, as I started dissecting this in my own head, I realized, wow, I am really, really patient with my family. 
And they are really, really, probably more patient with me. What types of things do we put up with from our family? People you're related to, blood relatives, okay, kids, siblings, parents, people we're related to, right? We put up with extreme dysfunction. Extreme dysfunction. It's always them, of course, not us. It's always their dysfunction, right? We put up with amazing dysfunction. With kids that just share their broken hearts with us and tell us sometimes how we're doing parenting. We put up with parents that seem unloving or parents that maybe don't understand who we are. Some of us deal with parents that have very much so a broken relationship themselves. They couldn't hold things together themselves. We deal with, with siblings. I, I, I have a sibling. He's, he's a good friend of mine now, so I can say this. But my next older sibling, he and I, absolutely, well, actually, I don't know if he hated me or not, but I loathed him growing up. I was number five of seven, and he picked on me relentlessly. Relentlessly. And I, I graduated from high school with amazing hatred in my heart. But you know what? He was still my brother. So my sophomore year of college, when I needed a roommate, guess what? We moved in together. It was a wonderful time of reconciliation because God broke his pride and God broke my pride. But that was partly possible because he was family. And I was willing to put up with it because he was family. We put up with amazing dysfunction with family. Here's my point. How far are we willing to go with people that are not related to us? God is calling us to be family as the church of Christ. He's calling us to be brothers and sisters. And we put up with extreme dysfunction of those that are related to us. And that is his expectation for us with those that are not by blood related to us. When somebody is as extremely dysfunctional that's in your circle, maybe that's in your small group, that's in your ministry, that's in your workplace... uh, What are you likely to do when they become complicated and unreasonable? Well, you're not related to them, right? So you can just kind of distance yourself. That's what we do. Peter's saying that's not acceptable. Peter is making it very, very clear to hear that that you are to treat that person as though they are a blood relative. You are to put up with their dysfunction and minister to them right through the dysfunction. We are to be family. People say all the time, well... They're family. It's what you do for family, right? You're willing to go to the end of the world for your family. Peter is saying that expectation is exactly the same for those that are not blood relatives. That is his expectation for the church of Christ. And you know what his standard is? That's what Jesus did. Jesus went to the end of the world and died for his family. And some of you might even be willing to say, yeah, I'd die for a kid, a sibling, one of my children, my wife, my husband. I'd be willing to die for them. Would you be willing to die for a stranger? Because Peter is making this clear that a stranger in the body of Christ is a brother or a sister in Christ. And you are to live to that standard. Now, didn't have to get very far before I'm pretty much a puddle on the floor reading this, going, how am I going to... How am I going to communicate this? I am not a living example of this type of lifestyle. I can simply just look back on my life and I can see all the ways that God has transformed me over time and I can look forward in my life and I can be convicted of the things that I have not yet allowed Christ into 
in my life. And I invite you as a congregation to join me in that as we go through this. Family. Be family. Next, be tender-hearted. Now, this idea of tender-heartedness, it's, it's shown one more time in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, this idea of tender-heartedness isn't as much a, a, an action as it's a state of being. This, this word in Greek is actually shared, uh, it's, it's the same word means you, essentially your bowels. You have strong bowels. You're well girded in the bowel area. And what this means is that your tenderheartedness should go deep. That it should go into your very soul, into, into the very being, your core of who you are. And that tenderheartedness should not just be a facade. It should not just be something you put on for Sunday morning to show up to church. Or something you put on before you go to your small group. Or something you put on while you're parenting. It's something that should go deep into your very bowels. And that you, sh- you should be strong. That's what this idea of tenderheartedness means. It's easy to show up on Sunday morning and put on our Christian personality or show, you know, wake up that morning and put on our Christian personality for our spouse to go to work and put on that Christian personality, but that's a facade. And what Peter is saying is that this should go deep into who you are. That that is the standard. And that's how we know, once again, this is not a list of, of moral actions. This is a, a state of being that Peter is saying here. This is who you are as a Christian. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like my tender-heartedness goes deep. I feel way too often as though I'm putting all of my energy into just not losing it. That's not the place of deep tender-heartedness. That's the place of a facade. That energy that we put into just keeping it together so that people will think that we're tender-hearted. That energy is, is a waste. It's missing the mark. Peter is saying your tender-heartedness should go deep. But it should come from your very core that that's, that's how impactful your tenderheartedness is. Why? Because that endures. Tenderheartedness from your core endures. A facade of, of moral activities crumbles at hardship. You can just barely hold it together in our context. What happens if we as a church really become persecuted? Truly persecuted. Truly in a context where our lives are in danger for being the church. How deep does your tenderheartedness go then? And that's what Peter is asking for here. Is you as a persecuted church in the first century, your life pretty much stinks, but you love Jesus Christ and therefore you are saved and you have the most amazing life. And the expectation for that is that you will be tender-hearted from the core. This next one, clearly we've all mastered this idea of humility. As I say that sentence, it, there's a little bit of a joke there. Did you get that? No? Okay. Humility. Humility is, is, is a complex thing, right? Or at least we'll make it complex because that somehow justifies our not being humble. If it's complicated, then it's hard and, well, can we really be expected to be humble? The reality is yes, because it's quite simple. Humility is a simple thing. Now, 
I, I'm, I'm not quite as eloquent as C.S. Lewis, so I'm just going to read you what L- C.S. Lewis says about humility. These are from his book, uh, Mere Christianity, just a couple of excerpts. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea, mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I love that. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. The first step in acquiring humility is to realize that you are proud. Until you do this, nothing can be done about it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. For those of you that have already checked up out, that's your attention getter right there. This is what got me. I'm reading this going, yeah, I got this. Wait, wait a second. I don't have this. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Humility is quite simple. Impossible to obtain without the help of Jesus Christ, but simple. Peter is saying that humility is valuable. Humility is part of the characteristic of who God is. C.S. Lewis would say it is the root of all evil, that it is the, the gateway sin that leads to all things. Humility is not easy to come by. What it means is thinking a whole lot less of others, or a whole lot less of yourself, and a whole lot more of others. Right? That's the quote the second time around. Being humble is no simple task. But as you look at this, 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 this thing that Peter puts together, he says, first off, I want you to become all of one mind. Right? Yeesh. Okay? What does that look like? Well, I want you to be sympathetic. I want you to be family. I want you to be tender-hearted to your core, and I want you to be humble. That's how you become of one mind. It's an all-or-nothing deal. Right? None of those things you can take out and say, I'm just going to be this one thing. I'm just going to be one of mind, but not humble. Or I'm just going to be humble, but not one of mind. I'm going to be humble, but not sympathetic. Or sympathetic, but not humble. Those things are, they, they, they have to go together. It's an all or nothing deal, which is what defines the Christian experience, right? It's an all or nothing deal. And Peter is communicating that to this church. He's saying, I understand you're persecuted. I understand you're probably miserable some days. I understand that the world is set against you, the economics, that society are set against you. But first Peter outlines his expectation as to who the church will be. Be one mind, be sympathetic, be family, be tender-hearted, be humble. And then he gets into the don'ts, 
right? This would be an easy, uh, it would be really easy for me to uh, title my sermon if it was like the do's and don'ts or the bees and not to bees, right? But he does the bees and don'ts. doesn't really roll off your tongue, right? The bees and don'ts of Christianity. That's what Peter gives us today. Don't repay evil for evil. In this section of the passage, he ties these two statements to this idea that you are called to bless people. And that you, in turn, will receive a blessing. Now, now I want to be very, very careful here. I am not saying that you blessing people isn't somehow, somehow a work that earns you the blessing of salvation. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, I don't think that's what Peter is saying. I think what Peter is saying very carefully here is that you blessing people is a symptom of a transformed life. An inheritance that you are already receiving. And I believe that's the case because he uses words like inheritance. You don't earn inheritance, right? Inheritance is something that is given to you. It's somebody else's choice to give inheritance to you. That's the whole point in inheritance. Because he uses that, that, that language... And it would be inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament to assume that blessing others is a work that allows you to receive blessings. Uh, I, I strongly believe here Peter is saying that a life transformed is a life that blesses others. And that that is a symptom, that is a manifestation of that life already have been transformed. Now, why is this kind of hard to swallow? is because on the flip side of the coin, you have to say, well, if I'm not blessing other peoples with my life, what does that say about my salvation? And I can't answer that question for you. I can't answer that question hardly for myself. That's going to take time. But what I am saying is that Peter is making it clear here that a life that blesses others is a life transformed. A life that is receiving an inheritance. And for that to be true, there must be some truth to the reciprocal as well. And that's where we need to evaluate who we are and what that transformation really looks like in our lives. Don't repay evil for evil. What does this look like in our context? I'm guessing most of you probably don't work in a real hostile work environment. Uh, For the most part, you've had to do a lot to get your families to this context, and so there's probably some strength in your family, I would guess. But I also know that there is a lot of dysfunction in this community. We would like to assume that missionaries are perfect, but they're not. I'm not. You're not. We're not. And so I know that there is evil being repaid with evil here. And this is what it looks like in my life. It it looks like distrust. It looks like somebody has hurt me, so therefore I'm real standoffish about ever trusting them again. It looks like somebody somebody hurt me, so therefore... I maybe don't talk about them all that nicely. Or maybe even if I don't say it, right? I'm really disciplined, so I'm not going to say what I feel about this person, but they've hurt me, so I really don't like them. I'm not going to tell you that, because you're Christians, and that would be gossip, right? But I've thought it in my heart. It's there. That seed of evil already exists. And in in that thought, I have returned evil for evil. I have not risen above that evil and returned a blessing. I've harbored it. And that is destructive. It is so, so destructive. 
don't return evil for evil. A while back in in Luke, uh, Tim, as he was preaching through one of his main points that we spent a lot of time on was that desire is the place where evil and sin start. That, that's, that's a place where, where, where sin begins to be cultivated. That desire for you to repay evil with evil, right there, is the sin of evil. And we have to stand up against that. We've made it culturally acceptable, right? Because if we don't talk about it, it's culturally acceptable. Right? Because I can think what I want as long as I don't tell anybody else or hurt anybody else. But the fact that it is in your heart, the fact that it is in my heart, means that I don't get this. It also says, don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. We never do this, right? I'm sure none of you married people have ever been into a context where your wife or your husband says something like, well, you always... And what do you say? Yeah, you're right. You're right, I do. I'm, I, I'm convicted in this moment, and therefore... I'm just going to lay down and, and, and be wrong, right? Because that's how fighting goes. Instead, what happens is you say, you always, and then your spouse goes, well, you always, and then you always say, and then you always say, and that right there is returning insult for insult. When, when I insult my wife to make her pay for the negative feelings that I now feel because she's insulted me or vice versa, that right there is exactly what Peter is talking about. That is not the body of Christ in its full health. And we do that here too, right? We do that in church because we have opinions about things like worship and how we do things and did we do communion right? And Well, I just really don't think that they understand. Well, why not? Well, because they said that, 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 that right there is so caustic and wrong. That is returning insult for insult. And for that person to then hear that response, right? I, I've actually gotten a lot of practice at this, being a pastor in this community. For those of you that want a lot of practice and not returning insult for insult, become a pastor, Right? Fortunately, I will say that I enjoy my job and I love our congregation. And I feel uh, safe working here and being passionate about what I do. But that's not to say that over the years, I haven't gotten a lot of great criticism about the things that have been done or not done. And what's my, what's, what's my heart? What's my feeling? What do I want to do? Say, you're dysfunctional. That's why you don't like it. Right? That's, that's our response. Obviously, that's wrong. For, for me to make that assumption, for me to say that assumption or to think it and not say it is exactly what Peter is addressing here. So I would say as a congregation, as the body of Christ, uh, I want to encourage you to go through this process with me. Those things that makes us anxious at church on Sunday morning or in our home groups and our families, those things that maybe you're like, oh, I don't really want to go to church today. Why is that? What's the root of that? Sort that out. Don't retaliate insults with insults. Why this is so important is because this is our calling. This is the calling of every Christian that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, is to be a blessing. That's your calling. How do you do that? You be sympathetic. You be kind-hearted. You be humble. You don't return insult for insult or evil for evil. That is how we bless. 
That is our calling. So why don't we live our lives this way? For me, it's fear. I'm terrified. I'm terrified of what could go wrong. I'm terrified of the consequences that might happen if I admit that I am sinful. I'm terrified of of the consequences of, of maybe just being honest with my wife. I'm terrified if if I'm humble and I put other people before me, I'm kind of afraid of what they're going to do. Maybe some of you volunteering here Sunday and you think, wow, you've been doing a position for a long time, you're volunteering, you're great, and I say, hey, great, you're no longer doing that. Somebody else is going to do it. You go, they won't do it right. There's a fear. Our lives are fearful. I love this. In 1 John uh, chapter 3, he goes through this this long um, theological justification of love. And then he says in verse 18, such love, okay, pure love, the love of Jesus Christ, the love that's truly been experienced, such love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. If you are fearful, join me in acknowledging that it's because I do not truly understand the love that has been given me. That fear is not rooted in something that God lacks. It's rooted in something that you lack. Fear will always get in the way of us becoming the church, the family, the body of Christ, the people, the Christians that God intends us to be. That is Satan's tool. If you struggle with fear, and I'm guessing everybody in here does, in some context, that right there is the reason. And that's humbling, right? Because it's right there. This isn't my words. This is scripture. Your fear comes from a place where you don't understand God's love for you. Because if you truly understood that, that fear would not exist. And that means we have work to do. Not on our own power, but in, in just allowing God to come into our life, into our congregation. This can look, in very small ways, simply just like an anxiety to you, a worry. I know there's a lot of you in here, myself included, that just love it on Sunday morning when I ask you to greet your neighbor. I feel the same way, believe it or not. Not an, not an extrovert. It's not that I don't love you. I'm just fearful of what you might say, or what will I say? I'm not confident in our relationship. I don't, I don't see you as family. Maybe I'm, I'm worried that you'll have a problem that I don't know how to respond to. That fear, it seems, it's so small, but it's so powerful. And it makes people feel unwelcome. I make people feel unwelcome. And it gets bigger, right? What happens when we're, we're placed in accountability at a men's group or a women's group and you have to share something about 
something that you're struggling with. Now, I know that this is a challenge in this community. In fact, I, I would say that, unfortunately, here we have a lot more work to do here than a lot of other places in the world. And you know why? Is because if you share who you truly are and what you're truly struggling with, depending on who you share that with, you could lose your job. Right? There's additional fear. Because we're all mortified that our mission agencies, our sending agencies, would know who we are. So we don't share. We're not honest with each other. We're fearful. We're fearful that God cannot be bigger than that circumstance. We're fearful that if the wrong person finds out somehow God will cease being God. Fear does drive us in this community far too much. It drives me far too much. What about those of you as new communities are coming in constantly over the next six months if you're, or six weeks? If you're new to this community, you'll notice our congregation will change significantly. We'll get 30% of a new congregation every single year. We're going to get a bunch of new people that you don't know. And I know, because I struggle with this once again myself, that many of us struggle with transition fatigue. Right? Meaning, please, not another person... <laughs> I can't afford to spend time on that. I can't invest in that person because then they're just going to leave me. I'm going to pour my heart and soul into this new person and then they're going to leave. I'm going to invite them into my home group. I'm going to invite tons of people into my home group and then they're all going to leave. My heart is going to be ripped out every single time and I am fearful. I am so, so fearful of simply just the natural transition in our community. And you know what that means? It means that people have a really hard time getting plugged in. Because everybody's going, wait, first question, how long are you going to be here for? Okay, two years, uh, two years, yeah, okay, yeah, I can invest in that. Two years is good. I can do two years. Six months? Better find a short-term small group. Because it's work. And we're fearful of the anxiety and the hardship that will come from investing. So I know we struggle with these fears. So as a congregation, my, my passion, my burden for you today is that you will, you will join me in First Peter. You will continue to join me in going through this. And hopefully that we together as a congregation can understand more and more that, that God has so much more for us. That we need to work on being sympathetic and kind-hearted and humble and family We need to work on that. I need to work on that. We need to be better. Now, are we going to accomplish this out of our own efforts? Of course not. This standard is impossible. You will not achieve it without the help of the Holy Spirit. I can guarantee it. You will be very, very frustrated. What needs to happen here is that you need to allow God to come into your life. You need to pursue Him and He will build you as a Christian. He will build you in that relationship. This idea of abiding in Him. That He's the gardener, right? And He's carefully taking care of you. If you just abide... So I'm not today preaching a moral standard 
go out there and achieve these moral ideas. What, what I do think that scripture is saying is that we have a very high standard of who we are supposed to be as Christians. And I think we fall short as Christians. And I think the only way to do that is to pursue more of who God is. I would encourage you to do that in community. I would encourage you to do that on Sunday mornings. I would encourage you to do that during the week in a small group, in a Bible study, with your spouses, with your friends, with your children. God gives us the great gift of community. We are not in this alone. And that's the beautiful thing. That's how we can relate directly to that first century church, is they were not in this alone. They had community. And in their, their environment where the world was set against them, they pursued these things. And I think we can as well. So I just want you to ask yourself a question. Because you can't do all these things, right? Doing too much, we know you won't achieve anything. That's, what, that's the whole point in like New Year's resolutions is try and do a lot so we can't do anything. Pick one thing. One thing in your life that needs to be transformed. One thing that Peter directly addresses that's lacking in your life. And if you're like me, you lack a little bit of all of them, if not most of all of them. And so it's easy to pick one. Just pick one. And go for it. Bring that to God. Share that with somebody in accountability. Allow him to come into your life and transform who you are. If we did that, I know we would be a passionate church reaching out to people, sharing blessings with each other. Maybe for you it's just simply opening up your home to somebody. Pick a new person, invite them over to dinner. Be hospitable. Share with them. Whatever it is, Peter makes it pretty clear that we can do better. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray in these things, Lord, that these would not be my words, Lord, but that they would be yours. Lord, that you would continue to convict me, that you would continue to convict this congregation of the things we fall short on. Lord, I pray that you would bring an amazing spirit of welcomeness into this community because you are allowing people through your good works to be more of who you want us to be. Lord, I pray that in this you would be glorified, that this would not ever be become about us being a church that is good, that it would not be about us achieving that, that it would not be about our programs and our, our standards, but Lord, that it would become about you. Lord, that you would be the sovereign God that we know you to be in our lives. Not because you lack that somehow, but because we don't understand it. Bring that understanding into our hearts. Lord, we commit the rest of our worship time to you. I pray that you would convict us as we go into communion and we worship together. Lord, that you would be honored in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.